and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Our scripture passage this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. It's on page 1697 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. We return to that passage to tell you a story. John Headley lived the extravagant life of a millionaire until an alcohol-fueled car accident in 2002 left him comatose and on the verge of death. But miraculously, John recovered. And even though he was so fond of the life of his millionaire provisions, even though he indulged in so many of the various different vices as well as pleasures of it, he chose to give it up. He decided to emulate his friend who had been doing charity work in Uganda and literally gave it all away in 2010 as he sold his $1.5 million farmhouse and all his businesses. He then used the proceeds to move to a mud hut in Uganda and start a charity for local orphans. The charity wasn't only for the local children either. British children with a troubled past were also sent there to help the locals and ultimately help themselves. For Pedley, it was a cathartic release from his once decadent lifestyle. He remarked that, I've never been more sure about anything in my life when asked if he really wanted to go through with it. Stories like that, they inspire us. Someone who has so much and and gave it all up to do something for people who had less. And in our society, in our culture, which is ruled by the desire for more, commercials that say, don't settle for less. You can't be satisfied with anything but the best. We struggle. We struggle to understand, we struggle to express what generosity truly should look like. As we come to our passage this morning, we will read about the early church, our forebears in the faith who expressed through the grace of God what it is to be a generous 
and gospel-centered community. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Acts 4, 32-37. Verse 32, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. An image of a community of gospel generosity. There are so many motivations for generosity. Perhaps you are familiar with some of these. One motivation for generosity that we hear often is, give so that you will be happy. It makes you feel good to provide some for someone else's needs. In 2009, Stanley Druckenmiller was the most charitable man in America. He gave $705 million to foundations that support medical research, education, and anti-poverty, including a $1 million gift to found a neuroscience institute at NYU School of Medicine. He had this to say, Once you make a lot of money, it's incredibly enjoyable to give it away. It's a way to satisfy the soul. Give so that you'll be happy. Yes, it's a way to satisfy the soul. But unfortunately, we all know that that satisfaction is so short-lived. It really doesn't meet the deepest satisfactions of our heart. Because while it may make us happy for a moment to know that we have helped provide for someone else's need. There are so many needs in our own life that the satisfaction is but a dim light in a dark room. It's the idolatry of philanthropic happiness that fails us. It's not enough to give to make someone else happy so that you'll be happy. Happiness is fleeting. Or perhaps you've heard of this. Give so that you will be remembered. What is your legacy? Be generous so that people will remember you after you're long gone. What is that but self-centeredness? It is not truly serving others for who they are, but it's using them to get what you want. Everlasting life in the minds of other men and women. Some of the most horrible motivations for generosity actually come from religion. Perhaps you've heard of this. Give so that you may receive. Give to God and He will prove to you by giving back to you. As though we need to give God something. As though God does not own everything already. It's really just a big Santa Claus in the sky. I'll be good all year long to make sure I get what I want. 
Or maybe this one, give so that you may be made righteous. You're purchasing your own salvation with the generosity of your heart. Your own immortal soul for a few pennies. I don't downplay the generosity of people who give a lot. Because within us is an innate sense that God has created to reach out to those who are in need. But so often our own giving, our own sense of how we ought to be generous is tainted. Tainted by impure motives. Tainted by our own selfish desires. I feel it. I know it. So how... How do we then become a community of generosity? How do we overcome the selfishness that really seems to underlie so many of the motivations that we have for giving to others? The Gospel provides a better motive. The only motive that really will satisfy us. The only one that can be the fuel for the engine of generosity that moves us to give to others who are in need. In our passage here, that motivation for radical generosity is smack in the middle of the passage. For as the apostles were testifying to the resurrection, it says that much grace was on them all. Grace. Grace is that radical generosity of God in the Gospel that enables us to be a generous community. But what of that grace? That grace is is tremendously generous. It is more generous than we deserve. For each of us, though we be wealthy or though we be poor, it does not reflect upon the spiritual nature of who we are. Scripture tells us that we are all poor in spirit. That none of us has sufficient enough wealth spiritually to purchase our own salvation. None of us deserve it. When we were still enemies with God, though, Christ died for us. Grace was shed on us. When our hearts were hardened and turned from Him, when we had a fist in the air raised in rebellion against our God, yet He said, I will save you. And we stand in awe, for we do not deserve it. What type of God would reach down and save His enemy when He should rightfully crush them for the rebellion they have had against Him, for the contempt that they have shown for Him? But as we heard earlier in our worship, 2 Corinthians 8.9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Not only is it more than we deserve to have God show us mercy, but God Himself gave up all of His riches, all of His wealth and glory, and became one of us. He entered into our broken world. The kingdom of God broke through into a fallen world to bring redemption. This is more than we deserve. God's grace is more. The generosity of grace is also more than we can measure. 
The value of grace is tremendously more than we realize. So here's, here's, an interesting, uh, here's an interesting example for those, well, it's interesting for those of us who are geeks. I'm not sure. Do you, do you have a cell phone on you? Well, here's a better question. Did you put it on mute? Maybe you have an Android, maybe you have an iPhone. Have you, have you ever really thought about these devices? I mean, we pulled them out, they've become so prolific over the last many years. I was reading an article by a fellow named John Gansel, and, and he postulated that, that an iPhone or an Android has approximately one trillion transistors in it. They're integrated circuits, very small, very tiny, printed on silicone. And then, in this article, he, he says, what, what would that be like if, if an iPhone was built in 1950? You know what computers were made out of in 1950? Yes, they had computers in 1950. They were made out of what they call vacuum tubes. And, and it was this piece of glass with some metal in it, and there was a vacuum in it with maybe certain gases and those types of things in it. And, and it was what they used instead of integrated circuits. And John Gansel postulates that if there are about one trillion transistors in your iPhone, what would that look like if it was built with the technology of 1950, and how much would it be worth? Well, one trillion transistors, if you purchase one trillion transistors, you have to put them into the computer. And he postulated that, that if you had one, one trillion vacuum tubes, you would have to have 170 of the largest single-story buildings in the world, which is the vehicle lander building, which is where they used to erect the space shuttle. 170 of those buildings. And then, if you think about the amount of power that it would take, about one watt per tube, you would have to build 500 of the largest nuclear power plants that have ever been built on the face of the planet. Two gigawatts apiece. 500 of them. On top of that, the weight of all of that would equal some 2,500 Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. And no one would ever text and drive. The cost, the cost of that kind of a machine would be $50 trillion dollars. The entire global domestic product of the planet is $50 trillion. And then you have to have your AT&T bill for $100 a month so that you get data service. The value of an iPhone with 1950 technology, you hold $50 trillion. And the value of this is a drop in the ocean compared to the value of the grace that God has given to us. Scripture says that when Christ was raised from the dead, that He led captives free in His train and He gave gifts to men. The gifts that He gave to us are not something that can be purchased with $50 trillion. It's not something that can be compared to it, for He gave us the greatest gift of all. He gave us peace with our Maker. Peace with God. And He gave us entrance into the family of our Lord and of His Father. 
we have been made children of God. Adopted into a family where love abounds. Where generosity is the pattern. Because it's the pattern of our Father. And the grace that is given to us is beyond measure. I don't know if you've ever... Have you ever seen a seven or eight year old kid with a jug of milk? Or almond milk, if you're lactose intolerant. But the big gallon, you know the big gigantic gallon ones, right? And, and a seven or eight year old is, is just old enough and just big enough, usually, to have to climb up on the counter in the mornings and pull out a bowl and get a spoon out of the drawer... And then they scale the cabinet and they pull out the Captain Crunch or whatever their favorite cereal is and they pour it in the, pour it in the bowl. And then they go and they get the milk. And I mean, you can just see it, right? They open the door and there's the light that comes on and there it is, the milk. They need it. And so they reach up and they pull it off and it about makes them fall over on the ground. And they carry it over and they hoist it up onto the counter and they open up the top and then you know what happens. They start to pour, and they keep pouring, and then they can't help not but pour. And then before you know it, it's all over. It's a mess. That's how God pours His grace out on us. Not because He's too weak to stop, but because He doesn't want to. Grace gets all over. It's a mess of beauty. In fact, the Apostle John speaks of this very thing in slightly different terms, but he speaks of it this in 1 John 3, 1. He says, how great is the love of the Father that has been lavished on us, poured out, overflowing onto us, that we should be called children of God. Oh, the generosity of grace is more than we can measure. It's more than we can hold. But the generosity of grace is also better than we can imagine. There was a show back in the late 80s, I guess, early 90s, called Double Dare. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe those who are here don't remember that. Do you remember? It was a Nickelodeon show. And, and this was the show where slime, right, the stuff that falls from the ceiling, became very, very popular. If you remember the show, there was always two teams of, of kids, teenagers, young, young kids, and, and they had various different games that they would play. Very messy games, and if truth be told, probably the kind of games that I would still like to be able to play, but at 41 years old, the body just won't allow me. So they would always play, and, and you knew at the end there was some big kind of prize that they were going to get. And so they're, they're doing all these various different things, and, and, and at the end, the two teams then have to take stock of who's, who's won the most games and who hasn't. And the team that won got wonderful prizes. Maybe it was a trip to Disney World or something like that. And, and then the team that lost, besides getting slime, what did they get? Consolation prizes. Right? Here's a movie ticket. Have fun. As we look at God, so often we think that God actually gives consolation prizes. That God and His grace is not as generous as it truly is. God's grace is far more generous than we can imagine. John 3.16 is a verse that is often quoted, For God so loved the world that He gave what? His one and only Son. 
There were no consolation prizes. There are no consolation prizes with God. He has given us his very best. He has given us his everything. He has given us his son. Generosity of grace. Generosity of grace is freedom like we've never known. Christ came, and Scripture tells us that in Him dwelled the fullness of the Godhead. That He represented to us the beauty and the perfection, the love and the grace and the outpouring of our Father in bodily form. And when He came and He gave His own life on the cross, He secured for us freedom. Freedom for generosity. He overcame all of those things that keep us back, that make us feel as though we are enslaved to the things of this world. He gave us freedom from greed. He gave us freedom from the false promises of wealth and possession. They make us think that if we have them, that we are secure. But in our hearts, we know that we are not. He came and He gave us freedom from envy for what others have. In giving us Himself, He gave us all things. And so no longer do we have to be envious of others, for we know that our Father possesses all things. And that as His children, He will give it to us according to His riches and glory. He's even given us freedom from the jealousy for what we already have. We no longer need to cling, to hold on to the things that we have. For we know that if our Father has given us His all, and if He has promised to care for us and to protect us, then we can give away what we have received from Him with gladness and with freedom. Given us freedom from the fear of not having enough. Christ Himself said that we should not fear or fret or worry about what we will eat or drink or what we will dress. He said, even Solomon in all of his splendor is not as beautiful as the lilies of the valley which our God has dressed in beauty. And so why should we fear when our God has promised and given Himself as the surety that He will provide for our needs? He's given us fear Freedom from the fear of sacrificing our standard of living or missing out on something enjoyable. In this passage, it speaks of the resurrection, which is a synecdoche or a word that represents the whole of the gospel, but it is important that it speaks of the resurrection. For the resurrection is that very thing which secures to us all of the blessings that God has gained for us through Christ's death. It is the resurrection that is the promise and the hope of the life to come. And that is the very thing that allows us to give up those comforts in life, knowing that God has already secured for us our happiness and glory with Him in the life to come. And yea, even in this life, He has secured that to us. You know, I don't, I don't know what spots in the world you wish that you could visit. If you wish you had more money so that you could pay to fly to some exotic location in the world and, and spend weeks and weeks there. 
But in the resurrection, in the world to come, when all sin has been purged from this, God will give us the glory and the joy of His fellowship as we explore His creation. In a world that does not experience need or want, we will have the freedom in Christ to do that. But in a world that is broken, God has given us another freedom. He has given us a freedom to sacrifice what we do have without care or concern for ourselves because what He has done for us. For He sacrificed His own riches. He sacrificed Himself and His own joy and happiness on the cross, separated from His Father. Friends, we, we give, we, we have a generous heart out of a motive of grace because we give because we have already received. More than we can imagine, more than we can measure, more than we deserve. We have already received it. We don't have to give to make ourselves happy because we have found the joy of Christ in His salvation. We don't have to give to be remembered because our desire is to please God and to be remembered by Him in the life to come. The radical generosity of the Gospel is found in God's grace. It is the motivation. It is the thing that empowers us. So what does it look like to have this motivation of grace? To have much grace in our community? What does a radical expression of a generous community look like? We see it here in the book of Acts. Even in the very beginning, it says that all believers were one in heart and mind. It was a community with a radical perspective because of God's grace. They view themselves, used themselves as one family in faith. Their hearts and their minds were knit together. Earlier in chapter 4, it says that there were some 5,000 believers by this point in time. Certainly within those 5,000, there were people who rubbed one another the wrong way. There were personality conflicts. There were arguments. But yet, here we find that grace, grace had made their hearts and their minds one. Because they forgave one another and they gave to one another as they had received from Christ. Not only were they viewing themselves as one family in faith, but they also viewed their possessions radically different than we do than the world does. For they viewed themselves not as owners of their possessions, but as stewards. It says that no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They had gotten grace. They realized that what they had was not something that they gained by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, but it was something that was given to them by the grace of God. And as such, they did not own it, but they were the happy and joyful stewards of what God had given to them. They received what they did not earn, and they gave it away with joy and gladness because of grace. It was a community of radical generosity, a community that had a generous posture. Look in here, it says that from time to time, those who owned lands, they sold it and they brought the money from the sales. And what did they do? They put it at the apostles' feet. 
They had a posture of generosity, of open hands and of open hearts. Willing to say, Christ gives me everything. I can therefore give away what I have. With confidence in His promise. With joy in the grace I have received. They had a generous posture. But not only did they have a posture that was generous, they also gave generously out of self-sacrifice. They followed the example of our Savior. Not only did they clearly bring to the fellowship of believers those, those revenues that they had from their possessions, but, but they went a step further. They didn't just bring what they made off of their land, but they were content to sell their land to give up their assets and bring it to the community so that the needs of God's people might be met. The only way that we do that with true satisfaction of the soul is because we have already been satisfied with the grace of our God, knowing that it does not belong to us, that it is His. That He has sacrificed everything for us. We have been made rich so we might give like this, self-sacrificially. Community of generosity, of radical generosity, but they were also a community of a radical new paradigm. Though this passage is about the believers, and though this is the way in which they acted towards one another, it is, it is the inbreaking of the kingdom which signals that this is how community should be everywhere, at all times. This is the restoration that Christ is bringing. They were a community with with a paradigm of a heavenly perspective. You know, in the benediction at the end of the service, it is the habit and it is the practice of our church and many other churches around the world, and yea, started long ago in the Old Testament, that at the benediction, we lift up our hands to receive the good words of God. Why do we do that? Because our perspective is, is that we come empty-handed to our God, but that He pours His blessings into us by His grace. That we receive from Him all that we need and all that we have. And we lift empty hands up to Him saying, we have nothing, fill us. We receive from You all of the goodness in this life. It is a perspective that heaven has. That though we are poor, Christ came to make us rich. And we are rich in Him. Not necessarily in material goods, but in those deep, flowing rivers of spiritual blessing. Peace with God. Forgiveness of our sins. Righteousness in Christ. A family. The new paradigm is is characterized by a heavenly perspective, but a outward generosity as well. And here, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, is, is a prime example. He's one among many. He's, he's put forward as one who is doing what others are doing and has, has been placed forward to see the outward generosity that grace produces in our hearts. I think it's, it's both interesting and important for us to understand that he was a Levite. Levites in the Old Testament received no land or inheritance among the people of Israel. They received a few cities that they can live in. But what they received as their inheritance was the meat from the offerings 
that the other people of God brought. They had no certainty of being able to farm land. They had no other way to support themselves other than to depend upon the offerings to their God. They required that God would work in the hearts and lives of His people so that they might receive with joy that which they needed for their daily sustenance. And Joseph here, a Levite, returns to that giving away his land so that he might receive the inheritance of his Savior. So that he might express to others who have need the joy and the grace that God had given to him. What about you? What is your motivation for generosity? Do you see, do you understand and perceive? Do we see that God has given to us His all? The riches He has poured out on us? If so, then what does that community here at Memorial look like? Sure, it's, it is generously giving of our material possessions. It is not being able to overlook the needs of others because we understand our own spiritual needs. We understand that Christ has met those needs. So we give of our material possessions and we, we give with faith in God and in His Christ that He will provide for us and that He will do as He has promised. But what about those other things that aren't material? Those other spiritual blessings that Christ has given us? The wealth that we receive in the resurrection? Forgiveness. Are you generous with your forgiveness? Are you eager to lavish your forgiveness on people who have wronged you? Maybe they've wronged you truly and deeply and you are pained. And Christ says, but, but I have poured out forgiveness. I have lavished it on you. I have forgiven you a debt which you could not pay you be generous with this same forgiveness to others who have wronged you? About forgiveness with your children. That's a hard one. Why? Because we're broken. We're broken parents. Our children wrong us and immediately we want to try to correct their action. We want, we want to try to make them be better. And really what they need is grace. They need generosity and forgiveness. They need the love of a parent. What about forgiving your parents? Many of us have pasts that are painful. Where we have been wronged by our parents, where our parents were not what we felt they should have been. Are you generous with your forgiveness towards those who have wronged you? Pain, even knowing it, you know, I, as a parent, you know, it's, it's the same story. When, when you're a teenager, you think you know everything, and then you go to college and your parents become, you know, the most brilliant people in the world. And then the next thing happens. You become a parent, and your children start to grow up. And all of a sudden, your parents are the most brilliant parents in the world. Not because they did everything right, but all of a sudden because you understand 
that they were broken just like you are. And as you seek to parent your own children, you experience that brokenness. And I remember thinking so many times, I'm, I'm not going to parent this way like my mom and dad did. And then what happens? I have my own kids, and what do I do? I do the very thing that they did. Some of it may be because they were an example, but I would like to think really that what it is is because I'm broken in the same ways that my dad was and is. And yet Christ has loved me. And I can forgive any wrong done to me by my parents. Though it does not remove all of the pain, the relationships still need to be mended. If Christ has forgiven me an eternal violation against His beautiful and holy self, His character, then I can forgive like He did. What about generously loving? Generously loving that person that just rubs you the wrong way. They are the person that even, even here, the reason you sit where you do is because it's the furthest place away from that person. And yet, how many, how many times have we done the same thing to Christ and yet He's loved us? He has loved us deeply. Maybe as a spouse. Are you generous with your love to your spouse? You love them for who they are and yes, love them in the midst of their brokenness. Or are you ever trying to change them, trying to force them to be something else? How do you love them Generously, pray for them. Seek God's good in their life. Pray that God will change them into the person He wants them to be and that He will change you into the person that you ought to be in Christ. Love your spouse with the love that you have received from Christ. Full, unconditional, open-hearted. It's hard. Generosity is hard because we are broken people. But grace is greater than all our sins. Grace gives us that which we did not have, the riches of God in Christ. And because of that, we are able to express a radical generosity. That grace does amazingly powerful things in our lives. In our community, it makes us stop worrying about our wallet and start worrying about people. It calls us not to be concerned about what others have, but how we might give to others out of what Christ has given to us calls us to love deeply in the midst of pain, in the midst of being sinned against. It calls us to love with forgiveness. The story is told of an elderly woman. She woke up one morning to go to church. She put on the one set of clothes that she had. She reached over and took the little bit of money that she had off of her nightstand and she put it in the folds of her dress and she began to walk to church. Arriving at church, she found everyone else had gathered. And there were all types of people. Rich, poor, young, old. And it was the time when they brought their offerings and those who were rich made a great fanfare of giving. They wanted everybody to know and everybody to see what they had given. And this lady 
very quietly made her way to the box where they deposited their money. And she placed two small copper coins on it. And off to the side was a man bearing witness. And this man looked to the disciples who had been following him. And he said, surely this woman has given more than all the others. For the witness to it was the very Son of God Himself. And what He was saying was, she is giving generously out of her need because she understands the riches that I have given to her. She is giving because I have given. He was saying, she's giving with a generosity that is the generosity that I give him. Let us pray. Father, you, you have met us in our need. Lord, your grace was so and is so great, poured out on those of us who do not deserve it. We have sinned against you, Lord. We have turned our backs on you, and yet you have turned towards us. In your generosity, you have poured out the blessings of your glory upon us. You have called us your children. We are co-heirs with your Son. Lord, help us to give, not to earn your pleasure, not to earn our forgiveness, but help us to give because we realize that you have already given to us. May our generosity overflow to our brothers and sisters because you desire generosity for us. For it's in the name of our lovely Lord and Savior who is generous with his own life towards us. Christ Jesus.